Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. Scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Marsha. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. It's 47 degrees outside. Hope you had a great summer. I want to welcome you, especially if you're uh, a guest with us or just visiting. We're really, really glad that you're here today. Uh, This summer, we are working our way through the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis, the word, means beginning. And so the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. And uh, today we are in chapter 3 looking at what is probably one of the most famous stories, not only in the Bible, but in all human literature, um, but also one of the most important stories when it comes to the grand narrative, the big story of Scripture. Um, And so if you were to step out of the theater and miss this scene, uh, the rest of the movie wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. And so we're going to take some time uh, to really focus on uh, what what chapter 3 of Genesis means. But I want to start by helping us get kind of oriented to where we are in this grand narrative. Um, And so over the years, biblical scholars have laid out the big story of Scripture, the story that's told from Genesis to Revelation 
in lots of different ways. And one of the more common ways of breaking down the story is in four movements. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or something like that. Uh, maybe you've seen this before. So the idea is that in creation, God creates the world and says that it's good. And then in the fall, the fall of humanity, humanity re rebels against God and the world breaks. Um, but then God in redemption comes up with a plan through Christ to redeem the world. And then one day that plan will be complete and uh, all things will be restored back to God. And so I think that's a simple but helpful way um, of laying out the big story, but to be honest, it's not um, my preferred way. Um, and the main reason is that it, it skips over huge, huge chunks of the biblical narrative. Um, it basically goes from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, and then it skips to Matthew, and then it skips to Revelation. Um, so it does give you kind of some of the key plot points, but, um, but it misses a whole lot. And so I tend to prefer a different approach to the big story of the Bible. It's kind of my mashup between uh, N.T. Wright and Michael Goheen, and it's the way that makes the most sense to me. It's a six-act play. Uh, think about the story of the Bible as a six-act play that looks something like this. And so a lot of similarities, but a little different. So act one is creation which um, is told in the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. And then Act 2 of the play is the fall, which is told starting in Genesis 3, but going all the way through Genesis 11. And then Act 3 starts the biggest chunk of the story, and that's the story of Israel. It begins with God calling Abram in Genesis 12, and it really goes all the way through then the rest of the Old Testament. And then there's what we might call an interlude. It's the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments, kind of a pause there. And then in Act 4, the hero of the story, Jesus, he shows up, his story is told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts. Act five, then, is the church, which uh, starts in the book of Acts and then kind of covers the rest of the New Testament right up until Act six, which is new creation, when God creates a new heavens and a new earth in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And so we'll leave this up for a sec because I hope this can be kind of a helpful paradigm for you in, in the way you read and engage the scripture. You have these six acts that make up the story of the Bible and each of them is essential to the narrative, but they don't all get equal stage time, right? And so the first and last acts, creation and new creation, um, they really only get two chapters each, um, which isn't a lot. And then act three, Israel gets 917 chapters, okay? So that's the bulk of the Bible that uh, in our old model is kind of just uh, put aside. And so it's helpful to understand when we're reading our Bibles where we are in the story. Um, one of my professors in seminary used to always remind us that the Bible is an ungodly book. And what he meant by that is that um, of the 1,189 chapters in the Bible, only four of those are what we might call godly meaning that they describe the world as God intended it. 
So the first two, Genesis 1 and 2, and the last two, Revelation 21 and 22, we have these bookends of the world as it's supposed to be. Things are the way God wants them to be, and everyone and everything lives in beautiful, rightly ordered relationships with everything else. And the Hebrew word for this that we talk about often here is shalom. Shalom, peace, not just in the sense of absence of conflict, but peace in the sense of um, joyful harmony, unity, flourishing, justice, the best possible world. And so the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible describe the world as it ought to be. They're godly, if you will. And the other 1,185 chapters in between take place in a broken world. They take place in a world marked by pain and suffering and injustice and violence. And so Genesis 3 through Revelation 20 describe the world that we know, the world that we live in, which is 99.7% of the Bible takes place in an ungodly, if you will, world. And so um, this is why it's important for us to understand. If you don't see this, then you'll have a hard time recognizing that there are all kinds of things that happen in the story of the Bible that aren't endorsed by the Bible, okay? So if you don't understand that the majority of the biblical story takes place in a broken world, then it's really easy to open up to some narrative part of the Old Testament and say, look, the Bible endorses slavery, or polygamy, or genocide, or whatever it is. And uh, somebody who wants to get you can go, see, look, it's in the Bible. Yeah, it's in the Bible because what you'll find is that those aren't portrayed as good or positive things. But they're simply portrayed as an honest and realistic depiction of what human life on planet Earth has looked like for quite a while now. And so these stories that we'll talk about, particularly in the Old Testament, they aren't really a collection of uh, you know, biblical heroes that are, whose tales will inspire us, but they're really more like disaster stories to warn us. They show us how not to do it. Okay? So just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's promoted or endorsed or taught by the Bible. The Bible is much more realistic than that. And so the way we approach the scripture has significant implications for how we understand the story. It's not a collection of um, greatest hits and Hall of Fame Christians that we should be enshrining and admiring. Instead, it's one unified story from beginning to end, six acts, that points us ultimately to the one true hero the world has ever known the one who laid down his life to save the world and the one who will come again to make all things new. Okay, so for us, we've spent the last two weeks in Act 1 looking at the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. When God created the world, he said that it was good, everything was as it should be, and today we move into Act 2, the story beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the chapter called The Fall. And so, Act 2 opens in Genesis 3 with a snake that talks, which raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? (laughs) Who is this snake, and why is he there, and how did he get there, and why can he talk, and what language does he speak? Uh, All kinds of questions. The writer doesn't tell us any of those answers. 
He's not worried about it at all. In fact, the same way that Genesis assumes the existence of God, it also assumes the existence of evil. Okay, so eventually the Bible does tell us how evil will be put to an end. But it never goes out of its way to tell us where evil came from in the first place. And so there's simply some of these questions that we have to say the text doesn't tell us. But here's what it does tell us. Here's how Act 2 starts. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And so when this talking snake shows up in the story of the Bible, what's the author trying to do? Well, in the ancient Near East, a snake would be a well-known symbol for evil. And we're told that this snake, not only can he talk, but he's crafty. He's intelligent, but in a deviant and deceptive sort of way. And the first words out of his mouth are, did God really say? Did God really say? He asks a question. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, because up until now, in the first two chapters of the Bible, which, again, takes place in the world as it ought to be, it's been a world marked by peace and goodness and beauty and unity. And now, all of a sudden, in chapter 3, this evil, crafty snake shows up and begins to question, are things actually as good as they seem? I know it seems good, but is it really and the way he does this is by trying to get the humans to question whether they can really trust God or not. He doesn't go after God's existence. He goes after God's trustworthiness. Can you really trust God? And he goes after God's trustworthiness in at least two, two ways. First, the snake's question has to do with God's word. What has God said? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. And so the serpent knows that if he can get humans to question whether or not they can trust what God says, then he can get them to question whether or not they can trust God. So he says, does God really say? So he doesn't flat out contradict what God has said or even accuse God of lying directly. He's much sneakier than that. He just asks questions. And he subtly gets them to second guess what God has said. So can you trust God's words? Can you trust, can you really trust what God has said? And then secondly, the snake goes after God's love. In verse four, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the snake here is trying to get the humans to question God's character and specifically whether or not God really loves them, whether he really wants what's best for them. Maybe, the snake suggests, God is holding back some good things from you, not for your sake, but for his. Maybe he's actually selfish. Maybe he has some other motivation for the rules that he's given you or the words that he's spoken to you. So I know you think God gave you these rules because he loves you and wants what's best for you, but are you sure about that? Does he really love you? 
So first, can you trust God's words? And secondly, can you trust God's love? There are so many things we could talk about here, um, but I really want to focus in at the heart of this question for this morning. Can we really trust God? Because basically what God has said to humanity up until this point is, I'm good, the tree is bad, trust me. And then the snake comes along and says, the tree is good, God is bad, trust me. (laughs) And Eve and Adam who was with her have to choose who to trust. The tree in question, of course, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was introduced to us back in Act 1 in chapter 2. In verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So these are the words of God that the serpent is calling into question. And many... Bible readers, Bible scholars over the years have questioned, what is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is it? What does it represent? Why did God not want them to eat from it? Wouldn't that be a good thing, to possess the knowledge of good and evil? Um, There's a lot we could talk about. Here's what I think we need to see. That knowledge of good and evil in this case isn't referring simply to knowing what's right and wrong, but deciding what's right and wrong. The idea is that instead of us trusting what God has declared to be good and evil, we are going to claim for ourselves the authority to declare good and evil. So from now on, God, we're going to call the shots around here. We're going to set the standards for how we live. We're going to do our own thing. In other words, God, thanks for getting this going, but we'll take it from here. So eating eating the fruit was humanity's declaration of independence from God. We are no longer under your authority. We're going to do things our own way. We're going to determine for ourselves what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. And this is really the nature of sin as it's introduced into the biblical story. And it's not just about doing good or bad things or believing right or wrong things, but again, at the heart of it, at the heart of this cosmic uh, tension that's introduced in this story is the question of who will I trust? Who will I trust? James K.A. Smith puts it like this. The question isn't whether you're going to believe, but who. It's not merely about what to believe, but who to entrust yourself to. Do we really think humanity is our best bet? Do we really think we are the answer to our problems? We who have generated all of them? The problem with everything from enlightenment scientism to mushy eat, pray, love-isms is us. If anything looks irrational, it's the notion that we are our own best hope. So it's not, the question isn't what are we going to believe, but it's who are we going to trust. There is something within all of us that's looking for someone to trust. Someone whose words we can believe. Someone whose character we can follow. 
And if you're anything like me in that quest for finding someone to trust, you've been constantly disappointed throughout the course of your life. I shared with you last week how, uh, how sad I was to hear of the death of Tim Keller, one of the pastors who's been um, kind of a hero and a role model for me in, in ministry. And it's, of course, sad when anybody that we care about dies, but as I've reflected on it, and I think part of what made it so sad is that there are so few pastors that finish well these days. He's been a guy that I've looked to and said, this is a guy who has, who has followed Christ and served well to the very end. And in that sense, he was a guy that I felt like I could trust. We're always asking this question, who can we trust? Think about the debate that go, that's going on around our country about which statues should be torn down or which buildings on campuses should be renamed. When we think about, really think about the legacies of those who we enshrine and honor, we realize sometimes maybe they weren't so trustworthy after all, right? So my elementary school in Corvallis made news recently because it's being renamed. Um, when I went there, it was called Jefferson Elementary, named after Thomas Jefferson, um, who turns out owned more than 600 slaves in the course of his lifetime. Now, of course, he's um, an important part of our nation's history. Nobody can argue with that. But the question is, is that somebody we can really trust? <laughs> is that somebody we want to name our schools after? All right, so they renamed it. Uh, it used to be Jefferson Elementary, now it's Jaguar Elementary, which sounds cool. <laughs> I'm not so sure we can trust Jaguars either. <laughs> if I was going to be in a room with one or the other, um, it's a little bit of a no-win, isn't it? <laughs> We're all looking for someone we can trust, and everyone around us keeps falling and failing, and so eventually... What we, I think, individually and culturally often defer to is, well, if I can't trust anybody else, I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to trust myself. So most of us aren't going to be tempted to trust a talking snake. We're going to be trusted by the, we're going to be tempted by the snake to trust ourselves. And what's crazy is as modern Western people, we can't even comprehend the individualism that we're accustomed to. It is the water, the ocean that we swim in, that we were born into. Self-made, self-defined, self-determined, self-identifying. We can't even imagine what an alternative to that kind of world would be. Like if it's not about self, then what could it be about? So we constantly hear, you know, little implicit slogans like, you be you, or live your truth, or you do what's best for you. And even in the socio-political spectrum, you get it on both sides, the full, the full spectrum. On the left, this, uh, I, I get to define morality and identity for myself. And on the right, it's don't tread on me and don't tell me what I need to do. The whole culture. H.G. <clears throat> Frankfurt, who's the 
professor emeritus of philosophy at Princeton Seminary, wrote one of my favorite little books. Um, and I can't even tell you what it's called because then we would have to put a little E next to our podcast uh, name. <laughs> On Bull would be an uh, abbreviation of it. Um, this is a little bit dense, but let me read you just three or four sentences and listen to what he says here. As conscious beings, we exist only in response to other things, and we cannot know ourselves at all without knowing them. Moreover, there's nothing in theory and certainly nothing in experience to support the extraordinary judgment that it is the truth about oneself that is easiest for a person to know. Facts about ourselves are not particularly solid and resistant to skeptical disillusion. Our natures are indeed elusively substantial, notoriously less stable, and less inherent than the natures of other things. And insofar as this is the case, sincerity itself is bull. Um, the whole thing is this brilliant little treatment of the reality of what we call BS. And he takes it very seriously. Now, his name is Harry Frankfurt, which you might think is like a gag, but that's his true name. Um, but listen to what he says. There is nothing in theory and certainly nothing in experience to support the extraordinary judgment that is the truth about oneself that is easiest for a person to know. What an interesting claim. But I think he's right. And the Bible would say so as well. We're looking for a hero. We're looking for a role model. We're looking for someone we can trust. Every person we thought we could look to fails us in one way or another. And so ultimately, we look to ourselves thinking, that's got to be the answer. And like Frankfurt says, we don't even know ourselves. And like James K.A. Smith says, <clears throat> really? <laughs> so the first thing the snake does is to get humans to question whether they can trust God. Are you sure God is telling the truth? Are you sure God really loves you? Do you really know who God is? Do you really know who you are? You see, beneath these questions is really the question of identity. Who is God and who are we? Which is a big deal because the author, the writer in Genesis, has already told us something about the identity of God and the identity of humanity. Sean looked at this in week one, Genesis one. God creates humankind, man and woman, male and female, in his image and likeness. And this is a concept, the doctrine of the imago Dei, the image of God, that has deeply shaped the ethical imagination of Christians for centuries now. First in the sense of the value that it places on human life. This is why Christians have always celebrated and, and, and defended the innate value and dignity of every single human life. Male and female, black and white, every color in between, documented and undocumented, born and unborn, every single human life bears the image of God and therefore 
is valuable. And as Sean said, the image of God also comes with an enormous responsibility to be the caretakers of God's world, to be those who tend to the garden literally and care for the earth and the animal kingdom, God's property and God's pets that he's entrusted to us. And so this idea of human identity as the image of God is absolutely central to our understanding of who we are as humans. And another way of saying that humans are made in the image and likeness of God is that humans are made to be like God. We're not God, but we are like God. And so what does this serpent say in verse 4? God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So interesting. The serpent tells the woman that if she eats of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, she will be like God. But guess what? The woman is already like God. Humans were already like God. And so the serpent's deception is to try to get her to believe that she's lacking something that she already possesses. See, the desire to be like God isn't sinful. Her sin wasn't that she didn't trust God. Her sin was that she didn't trust that God had already given her the thing that she was longing for. I think we could think about that for a long time. Where in your life has the enemy deceived you into believing that you need to look outside of God to have your deepest needs met? The desire to be loved, for example, isn't a sinful desire. It's a God-given desire given by him to be met by him. And the enemy will tempt us to believe that we're not loved. And so we need to seek love from somewhere or something or someone else. So that's part of what the serpent's doing here, getting humans to believe we're lacking something that in fact we've already been given by God. So if God isn't trying to keep humans from becoming like him, then why did he tell them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did he tell them not to eat it? I think it's as simple as this. I don't think that was a test. I don't think it was a threat. I think it was a loving warning. God says, if you eat of that tree, you will die. He doesn't say, if you eat of that tree, I will kill you. If you eat of that tree, it will kill you. It's the same thing we do as parents when we tell our kid, if you touch the stove, you're going to get burnt. So don't touch the stove or you will get burnt. I'm not telling my kid if you touch the stove, I'm going to burn you. It's going to burn you. I think it's that simple in one, on one hand. God doesn't threaten them. He lovingly warns them. Because sin kills. Rebellion against God and his ways has consequences. That's what it does. Sin brings its own consequence. I think God, as a father, was lovingly telling his children, don't eat of that tree. 
If you do, you'll die. What was the consequence? Well, the first thing that happens after they eat of the tree is that they realize they were naked. Which all of a sudden we realize this is a very different world than the one we live in. If I were naked, I wouldn't need you to tell me that. I would be very aware. (laughs) But something changed. There's an innocence that's lost. Right? Think about it. Like a little two-year-old kid running around the house naked, that's super cute. Right? A 14-year-old running around the house naked, that's pretty weird. When an adult does it, that's a crime. Like, (laughs) things are different. Innocence is lost, relationships are broken, shalom is broken. God was telling the truth. Don't eat of that tree or you'll die. And they begin to die. Death enters the story. Thankfully, of course, we know that's not the end of the story. In verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? These two verses really encapsulate the rest of the story of human history in a nutshell. Humans have now become hiders. We hide from God, from ourselves, from each other, and God is the seeker. God goes out looking for them, pursuing them in love, in mercy, going after those who have rejected him. And so all of us who have relationship with God through Christ to know that it wasn't us who pursued him, but it was him who pursued us. And how has God come after us? Not just individually, but humanity. God has come after us in the person of Jesus. And there's so many parallels, I wish I could take the time to really break it down, but let me just share a couple. The fall of humanity happens under a tree in the garden. And years later, another man finds himself under a tree in a garden. The Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus struggles as he thinks about the tree God has set before him, his tree, of course, being a cross. And so if Adam and Eve would have turned and trusted God about their tree, then they would have had life. But for Jesus to trust God about his tree meant that he would die. But he did it anyways. He climbed the tree of death and he turned it into a tree of life for you and for me. So on the first tree, you might say, we put ourselves where God deserves to be, claiming to possess the knowledge of good and evil for ourselves and deserving all the consequences of sin. But on the last tree, in Christ, God puts himself where we deserve to be. In verse 15, finally, part of what we call the curse, God speaks to the serpent, and he tells him, I will put an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first glimpse we get of the gospel of redemption. God promises to the serpent that one day an offspring of the woman will come and he's going to crush your head. 
and you're going to strike his heel. In the ancient (laughs) Near Eastern world, to be bit by a serpent, what would that mean? It'd mean you're going to die. So God promises that one day a human would come who would crush the head of the serpent forever, and it would cost him his life. What is that promise made and that promise fulfilled in retrospect to do to the lie that we believe about God? Who can we trust? Does God really love us? Does God really want what's best for us? Jesus is the answer to that question. What more could God have done to prove to us that he loves us and that we can trust him. He dies in our place. Father God, we are so grateful that you are seeking us to this day. And we do acknowledge the the ways that we continue to hide the ways that we continue to trust in ourselves rather than in you. But we thank you in your redemptive and relentless pursuit of your people. So I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here. Would you give us ears to hear your word? Would you give us hearts to receive your love? That we may see when we look at Jesus the one hero who we can fully trust, the one who gave his life for the life of the world. Thank you for your presence among us today and that you're coming again. In Jesus' name.